Pilot TV podcast this week, we're going even more Partridge than usual, as this time with Alan Partridge returns for its second series on BBC One. We finally escaped the embargo for Netflix's Shadow and Bone, a YA fantasy inspired by Tsarist Russia. Plus, we're taking a trip to the Mosquito Coast with Justin Thoreau and Melissa George in Apple's adaptation of the Paul Theroux novel. I'm James Dyer and welcome to the Pilot TV Podcast, a show that is leaving traditional podcast platforms this week and starting its own podcast super league. It will include us, the Empire Podcast, and, for reasons no one's entirely clear on, a small one-man show about greenhouses. Joining me... In this, the first and last intro, let's be honest, to feature topical gags about football, uh, are my two co-hosts, the AC Milan and Atletico Madrid of modern TV journalism, Boyd Hilton and Terry White. Which one am I? Am I the Atletico Madrid? Sure, why not? I don't know the difference. Yeah. AC Milan, I think is yeah. I think AC Milan's more glamorous, but it's fine. Terry, Terry, who comes to us live from a shared working space in <laughs> Manchester. So if you all like to write in and complain about Terry's acoustics, I will of course pass those comments on to her. You are <laughs> great start. Oh, how are you, Terry? How was your week off? How did the move go? Are you in fact now mad for it? Uh, the Manchester, the Manchester, um, Manchester. I'm very sorry if I am echoey. James has already bollocked me. And, uh, so if you're going to shout at me on Twitter like somebody did the last time my room was too echoey, sent quite, quite an angry tweet at me about it. And, uh, you know, we're just trying to do, to do the best we can, guys. But um, Manchester is glorious. The sun is shining. I was walking down the street yesterday, walking back from my shared office space, listening to Interpol, like having a bit of a nod to some people in a friendly way. And I've just thought, life is good. Life is good. And then I thought, God, that's a depressing indictment of late stage capitalism. (laughs) But but anyway, I'm very happy to be uh, in the North. I do not miss London at all. Um, But now I've got this weird thing that when I watch telly and London's on the telly, I I do get a little pine pine in my heart. Um, But Manchester, we'll get into this, I'm sure, um, when we talk about a later show. Manchester is very cinematic. So did you know that Manchester, the streets of Manchester are often used to um, uh, depict New York? So often American productions or or things that are part set in New York are shot in Manchester because the buildings are very similar. There's fire escapes. It is more like Manhattan. Yeah. I'm going to send you some pictures, James. Up in town, up in town, it looks like the streets of Manhattan. Um, and it is often used as a double. Somebody told me who works in TV and film. I did not know that. That is a good fact. Yeah, yeah. That's Manchester and Liverpool as well, to some extent. Mm. For some reason, yeah, Liverpool and Manchester both have, um, I think they both have more areas that aren't as obviously kind of renovated and built up like London and modernised like London that, that, that work for authentic New York. Yeah, I did not know that. I mean, I've been to both. I've clearly gone to the wrong parts of Manchester and Liverpool. I've never wandered yeah. around either city and thought, am I in New York? I can't tell. Oh, my God. But, Let's know. strap a GoPro to James Dyer, push him out <laughs> into the middle of Liverpool and Manchester and yeah. just see what happens. Like that My would understanding be... is someone would beat me up and steal the GoPro, but, you know, I could be wrong. <laughs> you would. Well, that would be, be a brilliant reality show. I know you don't like reality show, James, but following James as he just is himself. James in the North, we could call yeah. it. James in the North. James in the North. <laughs> Where I go up dressed like Jon Snow, like a man of the Night's Watch beyond the wall, ranging. Oh, could my work. God. 
Yeah, okay. I would, would watch. Well, speaking of things that we would watch or indeed listen to, it is worth mentioning that you haven't just moved to Manchester, have you, Terry? You have, in fact, been cheating on Boyd and myself, and you've actually started a rival podcast, isn't this true, which neither Boyd nor I were invited to participate in. Well, it's not quite for you, James. Um, <laughs> also, maybe it is. Well, it, yes, it's called Coming Undone. It's a podcast based on my book, and I talk to a different guest every week about kind of a, a tale of struggle or unraveling from their life and, and the road back to sanity or health or happiness or whatever it may be. Because after I wrote my book, lots of people got in touch with me to tell me their stories. And, you know, my story was quite extreme, you could say, in some parts and points, but everybody has their own shit, basically. Mm. And I've got a bit of a bugbear about recovery narratives and the, you know, and then I woke up and everything was great. And then I discovered running. And now <laughs> like, I, I got a, well, I'm not even joking. This is a total de- deviation from what we're supposed to be talking about. But I got an email this week that told me that there's loads more people with mood disorders and that the way to fix a mood disorder was to um, get a good night's sleep and to exercise. And I almost put my computer through a window. <laughs> like, the person who wrote that email, I'm going to print that email out. On it, I'm going to write the medications, the therapists, the counsellors um, that it takes to properly combat a mood disorder. And then I'm going to set that piece of paper on fire and put it in a bush outside their house. Um, <laughs> but yes, that's all by the by, because I have to start a podcast. Um, uh, and my first guest was Reverend Richard Coles, who, I mean... What an incredible man. If anyone follows him on Twitter or has read anything he's written, he obviously lost his husband, David, um, which he would, you know, his death was caused by alcoholism. It was a really, really awful kind of tragedy, really, his death at such a young age. And then this week I spoke to Laura Dockrell, the poet, writer and illustrator who talked about having postpartum psychoses. So... Quite different. So I'm just trying to imagine, James, what your yeah. I like the fact be. I like the fact that James wants to be on any podcast, um, no matter what the subject matter, no matter how the appropriateness of going on a podcast as a guest, because he feels left out yeah. of this yeah, podcast. Yeah, my FOMO is, is real, yeah. and that's my trauma. No, Terry, I think you should have me on, and I can discuss the difficulties I went through with the Star Wars sequels. I could share my pain I'm, I'm in well, that area. Yeah. <laughs> James, yeah, James and I would like to talk about the trauma of being made to watch The Bad Batch. Yes. <laughs> Star Wars animation and why it ruined my life. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Excellent, oh, excellent. Now, we've planned up future episodes coming undone, which is available wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, but let's move on to the actual podcast we're supposed to be doing today. Um, although I do have one very brief other digression. Terry, you missed this. We were talking uh, last week about Boyd's fandom, the collective names for Boyd's fandoms. We had a few oh, different yes. ones. The Proud Boyd's was unfortunately shot down. But we did, in fact, end up settling on the Boyd's of Summer, which was Boyd's personal uh, personal choice. We had a couple of late entries into this. Bad Boyd's for Life was, uh, was moved. Uh, and Matthew Fellow suggested Boyd Zone, which is my personal favourite. That is, oh, yeah, that's I good. think, yeah, I'm, I'm with the, the, what was it? Bad Boyd's for life. Bad Boyd's for life. Yeah, I that's good. Yeah. Bad Boyd's that for life. Good. Yeah, let's go with that. Okay, Boyd, 
it's time for what we've been watching. So I'm going to yeah. go make a cup of tea. You feel free to talk and maybe do some kind of hand gesture when you're finished. <laughs> this is because, listeners, this is because I gave, let's be, let's be real, I gave James a little preview of what I'd be talking about in this section um, and involved the word football. And he, But actually, for, before I get into that, I, I have to mention For All Mankind because what I didn't really get a chance to say in the last week's podcast where I interviewed Ron D. Moore because you can be bothered because you're too lazy. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and because you go on a bang on about Star Trek and Battlestar Galactica too much and we couldn't trust you with that is that For All Mankind does end up being absolutely fucking brilliant and and all the people who have said to us um, you know you have to watch For All Mankind they're right they've turned out to be absolutely right and the finale the series finale of series 2 which would have gone out on Friday as we record this on Monday is one of the most incredible hour and 15 minutes of TV I've seen in a long, long time. It's become an incredible, incredible show. And you, particularly, James, as a Battlestar Galactica fan, are fucking missing out on this Ah, thing. See, I realised when listening to your interview with Ron why I don't get on with For All Mankind. Because it is not so much Battlestar Galactica as it is Mad Men. And you will recall Uh, Mad Men bored my absolute tits uh, off. And it's the Mad Men-ness of it that just I can't get on with well i mean that's you're still an idiot for not because it is <laughs> it is incredible it is absolutely spectacular um and and and, and the tension everything the, the last episode the fin- series finale has everything incredible tension character development um spectacular visually spectacular stunning final sequence um to uh to a nirvana song it's 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 so ambitious and bold and all of those words that yeah anyway so for all mankind it's brilliant, okay and we should all be watching it um but Football. All, all I was going to say is, so this, every, as everyone, even you, James, as you as you referred to in your intro, knows there's been a big week for this European Super League was mooted. It, it was mooted on Sunday, then it collapsed two days later when everyone pulled out and it was a complete farrago. But it's been a TV event because Gary Neville in particular, um, who is a pundit on Sky, on Sunday when it was about to be announced, it was leaked that it was happening, that these rich billionaire owners of... 12 football clubs were going to break away from the European competition, create their own competition where they were entitled to stay in it year in, year out, thus ruining any actual, ruining the whole point of football forever. Um, he launched this incredible tirade on live TV on Sunday, Gary Neville, which like people have printed out all the words for, because it, it was like being scripted, you know, by a brilliant writer. He's so eloquent and he's so powerful. And he was just ranting and ranting about the obscenity of this proposal. You know, it was like something out of an Aaron Sorkin show. It really was. It was like Network with Peter Finch. <laughs> and then he did the same thing. He went even further on Monday Night Football, the next day, uh, joined by Jamie Carragher. And the, I know these ma- names mean nothing to you and these faces mean nothing mm. to you, but it's been a massive TV thing. And him, actually, when you read the accounts of how this thing collapsed so quickly, I think it's partly down to these really powerful, eloquent ranting moments particularly from Gary Neville a little bit from Jamie Carragher that contributes to it and they are going to be historic TV documents of this madness that happened in football this week that's thankfully gone away as soon as it arrived although there are still huge issues around the world of football anyway of greed racism um, exploitation of fans etc Qatar World Cup but TV moments Gary Neville as, as scripted by Aaron Sorkin that's all I've got to say Wow Yeah Now we talked a lot about Line of Duty. Obviously, we're doing. Boyd and I have seen the Line of Duty finale. Don't worry, we're not going to talk about it. We will not be spoiling that here. But the fifth episode will now have aired as we've gone out. Obviously, no spoilers again because we're going to be very good. But not fifth, six, six. Sorry, the sixth. I keep forgetting yeah. the seven episodes in the season. The sixth yeah. episode will have aired on Sunday. Terry, what, how are don't you feeling? Say, well, don't say. Yeah, don't, all I will say is I'm watching the two final episodes 
and I'm watching them because I'm updating and changing my Empire review because it's become, as far as I'm concerned, I haven't seen the last two episodes, it's become a five-star show, and, uh, and I want to reflect that. But do whatever you say now, nothing you can say can spoil what I'm about to watch this weekend, or I'm going to get on a train and come to London and chop both of your testicles well. off. Terry, I mean, you've spoken numerous times about how really people should just get on with it with spoilers, and What's they shouldn't. Ed? What's it ed? It hasn't ed. You fucking idiot! I've seen no on a number of occasions in the office what where we've been talking about things. You'd be like, "We're professional film critics. When you I don't said, like spoilers." Yeah. When I said, and do you know what that was? When it had been released. When I said, "Once the film is released, if you haven't watched it, tough shit. We need to do our job." Has Line of Duty even aired? No, it hasn't. Jesus Christ. At least least you're not shouting in that really bad acoustic room. Mother of God. Um, There are some... Yeah, no, we're not going to spoil it at all. No, we're not. But there are some great... Ted Hastings moments. I think for Ted Hastings-isms from, from, for, the, for this series, I think episode six is the peak. I'm pretty right. I think he was pretty, sucking diesel again. More, like some great stuff coming out of some great phrases. I find it quite heartening, Boyd, that as we're doing this podcast, that it's not just me that Terry completely ignores <laughs> while doing her email. She's actually ignoring you in the same way. So yeah. I feel like I mean, there's a levelling of the playing it's field. I, have, it's I fine. have an urgent thing I'm answering. Um, urgent exit required. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Urgent, yes. Exit urgent required. email required. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's Terry being the DIR. Okay, fine. That's good. That was actually surprisingly painless in terms of what you guys have been watching. I my Game of Thrones rewatch. Yeah, Terry hasn't even. I, I like watching. the way oh, you fan Terry. <laughs> what happened? Oh, that was really like painless. Us talking about what you've been watching. Point to football. I don't say anything, I mean, and that's my contribution. Sounds perfect classic, to me. Classic James. Classic James. Uh, Terry. Classic James. What have right. you been watching? So. Um, I want to talk about This Is My House. Yes. So, this Is My House oh, is a BBC One Stacey Dooley show. Stacey Dooley is obviously, she's more, more, I suppose, better known for presenting documentaries, BBC documentaries, and she won Strictly Come Dancing uh, last year, year before. Anyway, everyone kept talking about This Is My House. People were tweeting me and Boyd about it, and I was like, what are they on about? So I put an episode on and I was like, this is fucking shit. It's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a house. So it's a bit like, um, through the keyhole. So there are, there's a home and inside that home are four people all with the same name. So there'll be like four Karens, say, and all of those four people claim that their name is Karen and they live in that house. And then essentially they do like a tour of the house. They say, this is here. That means that. That penis spotlightner was given to me and by, you know, um, my boyfriend after his stag do. They've got like little anecdotes, little things that they are meant to prove that they are the person in the house. But obviously only one person is telling the truth. So it just sounds like a really shit idea, yeah, but it's so it? it's so <laughs> compelling. I I can't stop watching it. And it's and it's bizarre. And then they basically have to like whittle it down and whittle it down. And then um, uh, uh, if the person tricks them, that person wins the money. If the person whose house it is manages to convince them, they win the money. But basically it's like three of them are barefaced lying and they start like having this weird rivalry and upset between them. So she's like, oh, she's a shit actress. Like as if anybody would believe that. One of them was saying about the woman who actually turned out to be the real person. I mean, 
it is like weirdly dramatic. Do you are you watching this? Of course, and I, it's I, also produced by Richard Bacon. Yeah, right? it's or created. He created. He created. He came up with the idea. Yeah, and is one of these producers. And I think I mentioned it. It must have been last week when you were away because I, I went on about it. <laughs> much to James's joy. So this has got two weeks in a row of it. Uh, yeah, it's it's it's. What is the most amazing thing about it for me is that it goes on for a fucking hour, right? It isn't it? You yeah, think, it's really long. It, really I wonder long, what that it, feels like. <laughs> But it does somehow sustain it because of the different stages. And I think Stacey Dooley needs a lot of credit. She's got better and better and better as it goes on. She was so good at grappling with the four women um, who, were, who were pretending to be, three of them pretending to be the owners last night. It was great. And and um, Richard Maidley was one of the special guest guesses in the celebrity group. And Richard Maidley is invented for the show. He was so brilliant from the, be- the beginning, from right from the beginning, he-, he established who he thought it was and he stuck to it and he had all his notes and he was using um, body language, his body language theories. It relates to exactly Alan Partridge that we're reviewing later. Richard Maidley is the living, breathing embodiment mm-hmm. of Alan Partridge in a way, but also is brilliant. And yeah, he's perfect for the show and is an incredible format that somehow is sustained over an hour, even though it should never work. Sorry, James. <sighs> Anything else, Terry, you'd like to share? Have you watched any proper uh, yes. telly? So, so the other things I want to talk about is, two, so I finished Too Close. So obviously um, I reviewed the first episode um, a couple of weeks ago. I watched the last two episodes um, and I just thought it was great. I think she's, I just think she's brilliant. Like proper, proper, proper brilliant. So Denise Goff is just... I banged on about this last week as well. Yeah, she's yeah. just... I mean, you can totally tell she's a... She, but, but this is what I've been watching, James. I can pretend I didn't watch these things. Boy, and I are the same person. Um, we... Um, I, I just think you can t- totally tell she's a, you know, proper stage actor. She fucking really goes for it. I do... I did think there's a there was a little bit of... It took so long to get into Emily Watson's story that as soon as she got it, it was kind of over. But I think that's always one of the issues with the three-parter. Um, but I just found it really compelling, really brilliant. Um, and then uh, Mare of Town, which I know you reviewed, but I watched that live on telly this week and... It's funny because I know we talked about this with Unforgotten, so it's very slow in the kickoff. And I really like that all of that time spent establishing Winslet's character, you know, the constantly eating the carby, cheesy food, like the kind of grim mundanity of her everyday life, the nods to money troubles and dysfunctional relationships and... You know, there's a line in it where she, where she says, um, she's so crass and crude. I love that Winslet. I love crass, crude Winslet. So she go when she, he, um, she shagged, uh, what's his face? Guy Pierce. Guy Pierce, who, who is genuine. Like, I'm like, they've made Guy Pierce and Kate Winslet, who are two very, very, very aesthetically pleasing human beings. They've made them look like regular People, it's kind of a, it's like a trick. But there's a brilliant bit after they shag where um, uh, she mentions her grandson and he goes, oh, you're a grandma? And he goes, do I fuck like a grandma? <laughs> and I just thought that was brilliant. Um, but I just, I, there's some, the pacing of it, the rhythm of it, the kind of like everything's a bit grim and a bit shit. There ain't much joy. The skies are dark. The houses are bleak. Like, I loved it. And um, at first... Like we've forgotten, I was like, right, I want something to happen now. I want something to happen now. I want something to happen now. That, but that by the end, like final scene, I was completely transfixed. It's really grim. I mean, we James and I were talking about mm. this, but the scene where the 
girl gets punched in the face was was a bit much. And the kind of relationship with her dad, he was obviously like violent and a drunk. Like I just think it captures that that bleak part of small town America really fucking well where your prospects are as bleak and grim if you're a 17 year old person at high school or you're a um 45 year old blue collar worker or the local cop i just think this is amazing i think you know right now winslet has just done Ammonite, which i think is one of her greatest career performances ever and and then she busts out something like this i think you always forget like what well, just a fucking incredible actress she is with so much range and, and no vanity. Like, she has no vanity about her at all. Um, and then I did that awful thing because we live in a disposable instant gratification culture of going, I want to watch every single one now. And then, obviously, they're not up there. And people on Twitter, I saw, were, like, furious. But I'm, I'm enjoying the discipline and the pace this is putting into my life. Line of duty, the reason I haven't watched the other episodes is because I can't tell you the kick I'm getting out of a, a Sunday night communal watch. Like all, all weekend, I'm looking forward to Line of Duty on the Sunday night. It reminds me of being a kid and really looking forward to a TV show. I can't remember having anticipation like this for a show in honestly years. And obviously this is not just Line of Duty. This is, I think, the best series ever of Line of Duty. So the anticipation I feel on a Sunday, I feel like a kid. And then after it's over, I'm literally on the ceiling. Like, I can't go to bed. I can't stop thinking about it. I'm all over Twitter. I'm Googling it. And I've really enjoyed that feeling of like, now I've got to wait another week. And I know it's frustrating for everybody. But that the way you see it, the way people are watching it together gives me fucking like such a thrill and I love that that can still exist and I am I think with that and and Mary V's time I am so enjoying those things being weekly episodes yeah agreed yeah the the, the yeah, agreed says Boyd the man who hoovered them up the second the I mean, BBC I, made I, them available I cannot stop myself if, if I'm given line of duty to watch and I will watch it instantly but you know I watch it again live as it goes out you know I watch this episode like three times anyway but I totally agree with Mary Mary it's very I mean it's, it's very you it's literally made it is you, Terry, incredibly it? Terry like, incredibly Terry show but you know, it is. It is. It, it's good. I'm surprised because Sky often waits for a show to mm. play out in its entirety on HBO, particularly, and then it will have it available in one go. But I think for the, in this case, I think it's really good that they're doing it week by week because um, it's because it's a really because the mystery is mm. fascinating as well as her character stuff is incredible. It's the munching on the hot dogs in the car with the mustard dribbling out and all that is <laughs> oh, is great. Yeah, I mean, it's just like and, and I hate all that like. Ooh, authenticity you know yeah she's an actor like but exactly i just think she's got such a, a brilliant tone about her character and i just think the writing's really like it's just it is authentic it feels like an authentic kind yeah. of version of that existence i just think it's brilliant i can't wait for that and now i've got a monday night thing like yeah. so i was like i've forgotten to finish what i'm gonna do um, so yeah, I am. I am trying. I've I've got to watch Line of Duty because, um, as I said, I've got to update the review. But that way, the way it's bringing us together, doesn't that excite yeah. you, James? I enjoy the fact that I can be smug and elitist, having watched the final two episodes. So yes, yeah, you in- get a kick in a different way. Don't <laughs> yeah, you? Exactly, yeah. it amuses me in a slightly different direction. Anyway, Game of Thrones rewatch. 
How's it going? Oh, yes, you want my Game of Thrones update. I've had to pause it in large part this week because oh. uh, I've had such a catastrophic amount of stuff to watch for work. I've had to watch all of Jupiter's Legacy, which I cannot discuss because it's embargoed. But I have finished season four now of Game of Thrones, the best season, hands down, of Game of Thrones. And fuck me, that is an incredible run of TV episodes. You know, you've got the Purple Wedding in there. You've got Tyrion's Trial. You've got the Mountain and the Viper. You've got the Battle for the Wall. There is so much good stuff and so much emotional heft to it as well. Well, it's an incredible season. I'm really looking forward to sort of seeing how it goes. As I recall, five takes a bit of a dip, six picks up, and then obviously you have the controversial home stretch. But I'm 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 enjoying this enormously, and I resented having to stop watching it. But um, uh, what else have I watched? The final episode of Falcon and the Winter Soldier aired on Friday, uh, which I clearly will not spoil for those who have not seen it. But I think certainly for me, it has cemented the feelings that we've all had about the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. That while WandaVision was an exceptional piece of television and it was really really talkable and it was great, this has been a very middle of the road experience mm-hmm. i think is it is it it's not great tv it's decent tv it's certainly you know i've seen a lot worse things but if i were to stack this up against all of the marvel movies like for me it would be at the very bottom under iron man 2 and the incredible hulk so like it's fine it's utterly disposable and i have shall we say some concerns and issues with the final episode as well i just it feels like if this had been and we've said this before if this had been their first show i think they'd been off to a bumpy start i think wandavision's brought them a lot of you know goodwill, goodwill. but i'm hoping that loki will will but redeem it's it just honestly i i'm still fascinated by this because it's almost it being just fine and, and quite mediocre is almost kind of the worst case scenario yeah. because <laughs> what you what you to have to say about the Marvel output is that there is very little that is actually genuinely mediocre. Mm. Um, Ant-Man and the Wasp. Um, but um, <laughs> <laughs> but and, and it, it just, I, I'm, I've been trying to work out what went wrong and, and why it is. And, and it still baffles me because they, they know how to do this. We know they know how to do this. They do it regularly. And they know that people are going to stack up stack it up against the films and that's the that's the bar that they've set for themselves i mean there's been lots of discussion about whether or not this is the the plotting of this has been heavily altered uh and whether there was more to this and it's been kind of slightly eviscerated but either way like i don't see myself ever revisiting falcon and the winter soldier but uh but i definitely recommend that you all subscribe to the empire spoiler (laughs) special podcast to hear us talk for at least two hours an episode about this wildly mediocre show sign up now at empireonline.com slash spoiler specials for 2.99 a month and you cannot say better than that for extended laborious discussions of a decidedly average show but there's good stuff on there as well catch up with the penultimate episode after last week's podcast which i haven't watched and and i have to say the arrival of valentine allegro de fontaine (laughs) was a brilliant moment and oh my god how much did she that just are we let's allowed to say this now yeah, we Surely can say we this now a week later um, we Julia can say Louis this Louis Dreyfus in, just enlivening this show in yeah. a split second as soon as she arrived on screen but it almost backfired because she was so brilliant in that scene instantly I mean it was a very funny character they created as well to be fair to the writers etc but she was so instantly brilliant that I felt like this is I'm like, I just want to see a whole series about her fuck the rest of this she's just underlining the mediocrity of the whole thing by her being so great in her in that arrival it was always like oh it actually has kind of hasn't worked because she's too good for this mediocre show yeah but anyway, so up in her heels with her power hoops and her redacted business card which didn't have a name on it so good so brilliant she is fucking amazing yeah, yeah. she was very very good 
Right, I think that is all for what we've been watching. Uh, let's move on now. Now, before we get to the listener question, I have a slight adjunct listener feedback. Christine Quigley has the following to say. Hello, huge fan, of course. But as an Irish person, I have a tiny bone to pick with your Frank of Ireland review, particularly with your pronunciation of Brian Gleeson's name. You all got Donal pretty right, but Brian Gleeson pronounces his name Brian rather than Brian, which is the more traditional Irish language version. Uh, 100% happy to Irish-splain at you in future. (laughs) So, yeah, Christine would like us to know it's Brian Gleeson. Brian, thank you for correcting us. Yeah, thank you. Okay, so instead of a regular listener question this week we instead are going to take a moment to mark the passing of helen mccrory who died last week shortly after this podcast recorded so we didn't get to talk about this last week but most of you will of course likely know her i guess best as uh, polly gray on peaky blinders or possibly narcissa malfoy in the harry potter films uh, but she was an incredible actor who died tragically of cancer at just 52 years old last friday it was a real shame we couldn't um, do this last week but she was also she was an incredible person. I, I so I, I don't want to. I was really resisting um, being one of those people who makes it about themselves. So I did tweet a story about um, when I interviewed her. Um, I left it for a few days because I didn't want it to be. You know, people, you know when tweet, people tweet pictures of themselves with someone who's just died, yeah. just kind yeah. of make it. You know, feel slightly queasy. But I was lucky enough to have hosted a few Q and A's with her and interview a few times. And I interviewed her for her ITV show Fearless in 2017, um, where she played this human rights lawyer. And it was a really interesting series, actually, kind of underrated series, and she was absolutely brilliant in it. Um, but I went to interview her at ITV HQ, and I had, like, um, I think 45 minutes with her, et cetera. And it was just when uh, my, my dad had died fairly recently. And, for so- and you know, he's like, she was like, how are you? When someone says, how are you in that situation, you're like, well, the honest answer, I said to her, well, the honest answer is my dad's died fairly recently. It's fine, you know, blah, blah, blah. But she was like, oh, my God. And we literally spent the next 40 minutes talking about that. And she, it was lit- she literally gave me a therapy session <laughs> um, of, for 40 minutes completely failed to promote her show and i was like really it was getting to after about half an hour of this um i was like we should probably talk about your show and she was like no 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 don't be silly you know i want to know more about you it was absolutely she was absolutely incredible um so i i that experience for me will always go down as a thing i think about think about her for um but she was just and then every time i met her after that she was just incredible i so i loved her in fearless which was an underage show which i think hopefully is on the itv hub and that she was also incredible in Mother, Father, Son, mm. which was this way out there. Did we? I think we reviewed the first we episode, did, yeah. didn't we? we yeah. Did, yeah. Um, Billy Howe famously Billy. naked in the middle of it um, as her son. She was this incredible. Uh, she was brilliant at doing imperious people, and she brought that to that series, um, written by Tom Rub Smith, um, and uh, she was just fantastic in that show. And that's a really weird, out there, maverick drama if anyone wants to see something completely kind of bonkers but i thought i thought it was great i really loved it that, that i think that's on iplayer hopefully on iplayer and of course playing sonny woodley qc and quiz in in the in the kind of real life story of um the people who tried to con allegedly um uh, who wants to be a millionaire <laughs> which i went on set for that and she was incredible then as well mm. so yeah she Absolutely phenomenal. And people say how brilliant people are, but I happen to know for a fact that she was an incredible human being and 
absolutely incredible in everything, mm. every single thing she did. I mean, Damien Lewis said that in some heartbreaking words that he shared about her, obviously his partner. Uh, you know, Jason Isaacs has spoken about how wonderful she was to work with as well. It does seem like this is a, a consistent theme with her, that she's just a lovely, lovely person, as well as an exceptional actor who very much elevated all of the material that she was in. Like someone who could like make give a scene a certain extra thing like she was nearly Bellatrix Lestrange in uh, in Harry Potter which would have been a very interesting take on that role I'd love to have seen that yeah I mean she um think of her as, as Cherie right in The Queen she was absolutely brilliant and when when you think she had over I think 70 acting credits she was so prolific and not just in TV and film like her stage um performances which is is you know you see people talk about her work I've read so many beautiful tributes to her and she seems like somebody I saw at the national um I think it must have been about seven years ago I want to say six seven years ago somebody who just absolutely belonged on the stage clearly that was her medium and she was just so alive and incredible in that environment i think obviously that's where she met her husband damien um they were on stage together and just somebody who had every single story seems to have in common and you've got this from damien's incredible tribute which he wrote for the sunday times i don't i don't know how you have the strength or fortitude Mm. to write that quite honestly in in the day following but you can tell he obviously wanted people to understand who she who she was and why she was so special and just the brilliant joy she had as a, as a human being. And, and to Boyd's point, how she was so empathetic and focused on on other people. There's a brilliant line in Damien's thing where he was talking about, where she said, when she was dying, you know, love isn't possessive. I want you to go on and love again. But, you know, try and get through the funeral without snogging somebody else, eh? Yeah, that was so great. You know, to be able to kind of give him that comfort in that time. But, her I mean, her work is the thing that will last. And, you know, I realised I didn't know much about her private life. I didn't know much about their relationship. And and it... Neither should you. They're a... they, They seem like an incredibly normal family. They've got two children um which is obviously so desperately sad but prolific and just utterly utterly committed to the craft of what she does not fame but the craft of what she does i just it's such a huge loss you know personally for that family and for all the people that knew and loved her but culturally for all of us she would have i'm sure gone on to incredible roles um across the stage, across telly, across film, she would have continued to enrich our lives and our culture. Um, and it's just so desperately young, 52. It is very, very young. She was also, she was brilliantly funny as well, I have to say. Mm. Like she, every, you know, she could turn a fucking standard junket interview into a hilarious thing. Every, she, gave, she just gave you, she was such good value in every single thing she did. And that's I, I actually saw her with with uh, Damien one time at one screening, and they were uh, you were like they are just so funny together, just kind of taking the piss out of each other. Um, it was it was amazing. So and we and we should say that that Polly Gray and Picky Blinders. I mean, yeah, she is the fu- the heart and soul of that show. Has, the final that, that season for that has that wrapped at this stage. No, I think they're still filming of it. I think yeah. Okay, yeah, so God, I don't know. God knows yeah, how, not sure what they're doing there. That. Yeah. But yes, so Helen McCrory then, who did die on Friday, tragically at the age of just 52. 
Time now for this week's news. Um, who would like to start with the news? Terry, what do you have that's not press release based? <laughs> <laughs> um, you're going to hate this, James. I took a picture of, of it last night to talk about it. Um, I got very, very, very excited. You're just going to have to bear with me, James, because you're going to claim that this is not appropriate for pilot. Right. And I'm going to very passionately disagree because oh I want to talk about a snooker documentary. What? Oh, amazing. Isn't this exciting, Boyd? Yeah. So, um, so BBC Two have announced a snooker documentary from Louis Theroux, which is going to celebrate the golden age of snooker, right? Now, you're probably wondering what the golden age of snooker is. Well, let me tell you, is... Well, think about our childhood, right? So th- this is definitely like banging our, our age group of some may say early 40s. Think about our youth. My youth, I remember Stephen Hendry, Jimmy Y, Alex Higgins, fags at the snooker table, like pints at the snooker table. My childhood, my nana was obsessed with snooker and these men were like pinups in our house. Nobody was like losing their shit over um, uh, rock stars and actors. It was like the snooker, the snooker players. Um, and it was an incredible period, in particularly um, early to mid-80s. Really competitive, massive part of British culture. And I'm going to say British working class culture as well. Um, James Dyer, which may be why you're confused about it. So it's going to be a three-part series called Gods of Snooker because all of these, most of these men, I won't say all because I'm not sure about Stephen Hendry actually, or maybe you just look posh, but most of these men were from working class backgrounds. Um, And, you know, it's always famously actually been something of like a hedonist sport like some of the stories about what they get up to in their spare time and it's like womanizing and drinking and honestly like dramatics the drama in snooker um is huge and i just think this is fascinating louis theroux who tackles hard-hitting subjects like i rewatched the anorexia um, documentary he did uh, bbc ed again this week and he does you know um, Mormons and he does these gun culture in America and the fact that he is digging deep into snooker in the 80s and all of the drama um, and the tension and the conflict and it's Shakespearean, this shit. This shit is Shakespearean. So I am I'm very... Um, in, I'm very excited and I think he's he has had access to the likes of Steve Davis Jimmy White, who, by the way, I was convinced was genuinely with my dad for ages. Um, <laughs> I, I kept asking my mum if, if Jimmy White, because I look a bit like Jimmy White. Um, Cliff Corbin, um, so no date as yet. Three-parter, BBC Two. This is proper vibes. Did you ever see then the the um, BBC drama about them, the Rack Pack? Did you ever see? Do you know about that? <laughs> Oh my god, Terry! That is a great title, Rat yeah. Pack. Yeah. Oh no, no, this was like. Um, hold on, I'm going to go about five years ago. I think it was BBC Four when back when BBC Four did you know dramas. It was great, and it was it was Luke Treadaway as Alex Higgins, Will oh Merrick god. as Steve Davis, Kevin Bishop as Barry Hearn, who was brilliant. This sounds um, like the greatest thing ever. They're all in it. Yeah, Jimmy White, John Sessions played Ted Lowe. Right. Oh my god. Uh, 
But honestly, check out. I, I don't know. It must be on iPlay. It must be somewhere. The Rack Pack. Yeah, it's literally all about those people. Yeah. I'm not going to apologise for talking about Snooker because I think this is exciting. And there's actually, there's a trailer on uh, the BBC website if you want to check that out. But if you are also of a certain age and a certain persuasion and a certain class, then join me in being excited about Ghost of Snooker by Louis Theroux. Join Terry and Jimmy White, the whirlwind. The whirlwind, who is currently in my downstairs toilet. Well, he's not. Not, not literally. But, <laughs> no, he's not, but my, my boyfriend has a amazing framed, you know, like those um, heroic pictures of dogs um, or war heroes, and they're shot from underneath <laughs> and they've got the heroic pose. My boyfriend, bizarrely, has a heroic picture of Jimmy White that's slightly, I think it's got some weird treatment on it. And... Uh, when we first moved in together, he pulled this out of a box and I was like, absolutely, categorically not. And it was relegated <laughs> to the toilet. And then when we moved to Manchester, I was like, Jimmy White is not coming with us. And I opened the a door to the downstairs loo on our first day and who's in there? The whirlwind looking <laughs> right at me. <laughs> I don't know how we've just spent however many minutes talking about the whirlwind. <laughs> but uh... <laughs> But there you go. Oh, I'm glad we did. Yeah. All right. Well, as I was saying before I was rudely interrupted by Jimmy White, uh, as you will know, I'm very excited about HBO's adaptation of The Last of Us. Uh, and they have cast Tommy. They have cast Gabriel Luna as Tommy, who is obviously Joel's brother in the game. Uh, and in this case will be Pedro Pascal's brother in the in the TV adaptation. And that is a great bit of casting. Gabriel Luna played the, uh, the sort of evil Terminator in Terminator Dark Fate. Uh, I did an interview with him on Halloween in a hotel bar. There's a hot fact for you. But, uh, but yeah, so that's, uh, that, that show is shaping up to be magnificent, and I cannot wait. Uh, but more important than that, of course, Terry, is that Downton 2, 2 Downton, 2 Furious, yes. or Downton <laughs> Abbey, if you will, uh, has uh, has begun filming, due to come out this year in the cinema. So that's very exciting. Um, I'm surprised you haven't begun with uh, that, you know, Ted Lasso. Yes, Taylor. there was. That yeah. is true. They did. Apple Good had point. their their spring loaded event this week when they unveiled the new iPad Pro, uh, the new iMac, all of which looked very very exciting. But the best part of that obviously was the trailer for Ted Lasso season two, which is coming in July. More Ted. Oh, can't wait! Cannot wait! Yeah, it's the closest is. I'll ever get to a football match. Yeah, that is thrilling. I love the fact that you like a show about football as well. I know. It's, it's very uncomfortable for me, but it is excellent, and he's magnificent. It's a brilliant, I mean, it's not brilliant really show. About football, right? It's just that happens. It's about to be um, Ted. Yeah, yeah, in the way that Jaws isn't about shark, yeah, yeah, I guess. Yeah, well, so. no, but it's like, but you don't need yeah. to have any interest in, in no. you know, the oh, sport. No, absolutely not, no. Uh, no. And I think that's what makes it work so well. But also, it, you know, it is the perfect, as we've discussed, it was the perfect lockdown TV show because it was like bottled feel-good feelings, uh, and I loved it. It was great. What else has um, happened in the world? I was excited to see, Kobe Enthusiasm fans um, will have seen this week that Richard Lewis, who has been in every um, series of Kobe, he's, he's um, Larry David's real-life, lifelong friend, um, fellow stand-up comedian. Richard Lewis was announced it wouldn't be in Series 11, which they're filming at the moment. But then he issued, he, he tweeted that he is in an episode of Series 11 um, because he's, he had, he's had multiple surgeries. He had an accident which led to multiple surgeries and, he, and he's been, pretty, and he'd been, been in a pretty bad way, but he somehow managed to rouse himself to start in an episode of Curb and he talked about how um, Larry hugged him when he walked on set and they all applauded and of course Larry doesn't hug anyone um, they all applauded for him the whole all the classic cast are back Cheryl Hines Susie Essman JB Smoove and so it's kind of like the news is that A that 
that he, Richard Lewis, is alive and well and will be starring in Kobe Enthusiasm, which is brilliant news. And also that Kobe Enthusiasm is filming now and presumably nearing the end of its run and we're going to get to see it, I'm assuming, uh, later this year. That wasn't a press release. <laughs> well, there has been some uh, some Marvel talk. Secret Invasion, one of the upcoming Disney Plus Marvel shows, has cast Emilia Clarke, the mother of dragons herself, and potentially Olivia Coleman as well. Ooh, yeah, this uh, is exciting, right? Yeah, Kingsley Benadier's in that as well. That's looking to be a mental show. I'm uh, I'm really, really excited about this. Scrolls, yeah. all scrolls. Mm-hmm. Terry's a big fan <laughs> of scrolls, you can tell. I right. love a scroll. Okay. You love a scroll. Um, anything else? We should skip through news this week because we've got about yeah, 15,000 shows to review. A, a huge amount hasn't happened, let's be frank. I'll, do, I'll just say this. Richard Aoad is hosting the TV BAFTAs, um, which I think are coming in June, which is good. He did them last year um, when they were kind of, It was a lockdown show, It was a, but he did it brilliantly. If you're going to have to do a lockdown-type award show with you know slightly clumsy Zoom calls and some people there and other people not there, who knows how, what they'll actually be doing with the TV Baptist this time, but he was brilliant because he is so wryly funny and um, doesn't take not taking anything seriously and can riff on what the fuck's going on. So I think it was a really good decision to get him back hosting mm. those. All right, well, I guess that is it for news. So we will move on now to this week's reviews. And first up this week, we have Shadow and Bone, uh, which dropped on Netflix last week but was embargoed. Uh, this is, of course, based on Lee Bardugo's Grishaverse series and sees Jesse Maylie as uh, Alina Starkov, a lowly cartographer in the army who discovers that she may, in fact, be the legendary sun summoner who is destined to save the world. Because, of course, that happens. So you've got uh, lots of sort of czarist Russian uniforms. You've got magic. There's a big fold of darkness in this. There's lots of stuff going on but the question is boyd did this give you a massive shadow and boner (laughs) thanks yes uh well not not entirely (laughs) uh there's so many of these right there are so many of these um fantasy series aren't there Mm. that are world building shows so they have to do the tricky job of hooking you in with the, with you know as quickly as possible in this day and age, whilst building a complicated, invariably complicated fantasy world. In this case, as you said, I think in, in right at the beginning of the podcast, it's got this kind of Russia Russian kind of quality to it. Yeah, um, we with it visually with the kind of language and the alphabet that that kind of signs and flags use. It's got like a it looks it's got a very Russian feel to it. And what they're wearing feels very Red Army ish. Um, so it's got that vibe, but it is establishing this kind of quite complex um, world where um, for some reason, and it's very, it's, it's young adult, it's very mm. YA, so for some reason the kids, young, teenagers and young adults seem to be running things or seem to have all these different powers. That's such a weird YA trope, isn't it? Right. Where everyone is a teenager, right. no matter exactly. what walk of life no or profession, they yeah, all no kids. explanation for it, exactly. <laughs> so I thought it was just me. In fact, I'm so glad you said that because as yeah. a, I consider you to be the foremost expert on these things <laughs> in the world, let alone on this podcast. Um, there was a, but it's a, so weird, yeah. Yeah. Why worrying lack of adults. <laughs> worrying lack of adults. These kids have a huge power to do what the fuck they want. And, you know, adults kind of standing on the bi- on, on the sidelines, kind of like, oh, well, yeah, they can do, they'll do that. It's fine. Um, so there's kids with different types of powers, mostly like in terms of manipulating the elements seems to be like the main yeah. types of powers they have. Um, and there's one army um, trying to get across this big, big shadow fold thing that how, that monsters lie within to get to the other side. And it's kind of like, on the one level, it's quite simple, but on another level, it's quite complicated. Anyway, yeah. bottom line is, I think as these things go, 
Um, I thought it did a pretty decent job of the world building. I think, you know, we say visually, visually, I thought it was excellent. And this isn't a given anymore, actually, because I would say, for example, The Wink Soul, which I know you loved, James, (laughs) in the end. I I didn't mind The Wink Soul. I did watch the whole thing, I do admit. So it was compelling enough. But it it had a fairly kind of cheesy, almost quite (laughs) a weirdly like... Do you know what I mean? Like a kind of slick, overly slick, almost visual quality to it, I felt, like the Wink Saga. Whereas this feels more cinematic and more like a film. Mm. The way it's shot widescreen. It's very lavish. The production values are off the chain. Exactly. It feels like this has got, they've spent, it feels like in the Netflix budget for lavish world-building fantasy (laughs) series, this has got the bigger one than the other one than winks yeah 100%. And, and, and nearing the witcher it's in that in that witcher realm and i think actually i thought felt this was more visually um impressive than the witcher i would yeah, say I think that's fair so i thought it was very it looked great i thought it was well directed i think the acting is variable and i think often is with um, <laughs> ya stuff where you've yeah. got young people you know um some of them clearly fresh out of drama school and all that um often quite posh i feel um i don't know i haven't checked uh, whether it's public school or whatever i don't know but there's a certain type of acting that's a little bit it feels a little bit not quite naturalistic enough where everything they're saying the diet and it may be the fault of the dialogue to be honest but where you're not quite sure whether it feels like everything is being said almost in inverted commas rather than it being like a a kind of authentic naturalistic vibe to it and that's what and Going back to Game of Thrones, I, th- oh my, I was tempted to watch rewatch the first episode of the game just to check. But my memory of Game of Thrones was that right from the beginning, it had a very authentic naturalism to it and a kind of wit to the dialogue that meant that yeah. when characters like Tyrion were funny from the start, genuinely funny, whereas this relies on kind of slightly overly contrived bants kind of dialogue, <laughs> which these young, young actors are kind of variable at. It's just a bit forced, the element of it. So I enjoyed it. I thought as these things go, it was kind of above average, but I didn't think it was special enough to draw me in and feel like this is going to be something that I really, really have to watch week in, week out. It was decent, and, you know, as these things go. The thing with this is the world building is very detailed and quite complex, if a bit baffling, quite frankly. Like, it's quite hard to get your bearings. Game of Thrones did this really good job of it always, you always had a sense of place. Because that title, that magnificent title sequence, acted as the maps you have at the beginning of fantasy novels, you always knew where you were in relation to other things. You had a real sense of geography. And in this, that's the thing. It's really missing that. Ironically, in a show about a cartographer, it's really missing a fucking map because you can't work out who anyone is. So you've got the Fjordans, were like these sort of Scandinavians. You've got the Russian troops. And it's very confusing, the politics of this show. And I've seen maybe four or five episodes at this point, and I'm still no clearer as to what the fucking politics are. My understanding, and I've not read the novels, but my understanding is that, you know, like there are two threads. There's a thread, there's Alina Starkov's thread, where she's this sort of messianic magical figure. And then there's this sort of like ragtag Ocean's 12 bunch of sort of 'er ne'er-do-well sort of like con artists and criminals in this parallel narrative, which is related to the primary one, but what I, from my understanding is that's literally not part of the book. There, that's a separate set of books, and they bundled it in here, I think, to give it a second. I don't know whether it's Thrones inspired or whether they just want a bit more texture, but to give it sort of more going on. And I'm actually not sure that actually helps because it doesn't feel like, although it's thematically connected and there is a, there is some crossover sort of plot wise, it does feel like a separate story, and you just feel yanked from one to the other. And I'm not sure they complement each other all that well. Um, and I think that one in particular. 
particular, the fact that everyone is like 17 is really, really weirdly obvious. I mean, so the whole criminal underworld is run by teenagers. Yeah. I feel like we're watching Bugsy Malone and I'm not sure why. I know. I have to say, when Ben Barnes arrived, Ben Barnes arrives in episode two, and yeah. I was like, what a relief, because mm. I, was, I was like... <laughs> I mean, yeah, but so Ben Barnes, so Ben Barnes plays General Kirigan, who's kind of this darkling, he's the head of the army, head of the, the Grishas, who are kind of the mages in this. And I think in episode two, that's when you start to understand vaguely what's going on. But I think the problem this has, which so many YA properties do have, and like, like we've said, I love a YA show, I really do, and indeed a YA film, but this show takes itself too fucking seriously. And and that's a problem, because as you said with Game of Thrones, like Game of Thrones genuinely very, very funny. Like the Hound, Sandal Clegane, really funny. Uh, you know, that bit where, where Jerome Morrow is like when he's talking about Joffrey, he's like, there's no cure for being a cunt. You know, like there's really great lines in Game of Thrones and it's effortless. And you're exactly right. You nailed it completely here. They go for sort of bants between mates in this, but it's really forced and stilted and not very well delivered either. So we isn't funny and it doesn't feel naturalistic at all and i think this show it's not bad show at all and i actually think it's decent and i'm going to watch it to the end but i think the quality that they put into the production design and the world building and just how beautiful the whole thing looks and how much money they have thrown at this doesn't extend to maybe the quality of the characterization like the main character which is jesse maylee's character she's actually really interesting because she's quite steely but she's also quite vulnerable and her kind of love interest in this played by archie renault is you know captain bland mcblanderson i like ben barnes i really do i think he brings something to this which he was desperately needing and you know, zoe wanamaker's in here as well as this kind of mage trader so you know there are good people in here but yeah it, it feels like good but without being exceptional YA fair. But anyway, Shadow and Bone, should you feel the need to delve into gunpowder-esque Russian fantasy, uh, that is available on Netflix now in its entirety. Next this week, we have Viewpoint on ITV, which does star Noel Clark as DC Martin King, uh, who's a detective looking at the disappearance of a teacher. It is grim. It is set in Manchester. So who better to tell us about it than Terry White? James, this is not grim. You do not know grim, my friend. Um, <laughs> As you say, this is, well, you might not say, because I wasn't really listening, but, <laughs> hey, this is a five-part ITV drama stripped across five consecutive nights. I've seen the first episode. Um, now, I think this, from what I've read so far, this is being set up in, set up in a slightly, um, I suppose, I think, it's, <laughs> I think it's being set up to fail in the sense that they keep, everybody keeps talking about how the fact it's basically, you know, rear window-esque. Can I just request that nobody ever says anything is like rear window, especially maybe not an ITV five-part drama? It kind of <laughs> feels like it's being set up. To, do you know what I mean? Um, Obviously, in my interview with uh, No Clock, I mentioned that it was like rear window. <laughs> <laughs> how it is like rear window, and actually, um, it's, it's slightly got more Gone Girl vibes for me and we'll talk about why but the the rear window setup that we speak of is um that it is a it follows a police surveillance investigation which is put right into the middle of the, of this um community in Manchester and Noel Clark as you say is the copper who is running that surveillance um he's doing it from the flat of a young single mum played by Alexandra Roach 
She also, completely coincidentally, has a bit of a liking for voyeurism, um, we're led to believe. He's clearly got a some kind of, of troubled past. There's a hint at something that's happened with a past partner. Um, the surveillance request has come from the old team he used to work um, within. And who he's been asked to watch is this guy, Greg Sullivan, who's been played by um, Fenty Balugan, who they suspect is involved in the disappearance of his girlfriend, who happens to be a teacher. Now... It's the first episode is a little bit well, it's a lot of exposition because they're trying to set up the entire thing. And what's slightly confusing is what's what's difficult about the first episode is you're not entirely sure how all these characters are linked, apart from they are all part of this community. And this community is kind of all under watch. Um while they're trying to work out, A, where has this teacher gone to? And B, is her boyfriend, who seems very dodgy and controlling, actually involved in some way? Um, so Alexandra Roach's character is a little bit of a kind of a bad girl, potentially. There's um, doobie butts in the front room, an empty booze bottle under the settee. She's set up because she collects records, which clearly means, you know, she's a bit of a wild card. Um <laughs> I, I have to say, I really like Noel Clark in this. Though, you know, we've talked about Noel Clark on this podcast before. He's just um, been awarded the Outstanding Contribution at BAFTA, which I think was incredibly well-deserved. We reviewed uh, The Drowning recently. Um, mm. We disagreed about The Drowning we recently. Did. <laughs> um, which was the Channel 5 a show that was made by his production company, Unstoppable. Obviously, I think this year was the third season of Bulletproof. Noel is prolific, both from a production perspective, but also from a performance perspective. And I think this is pretty much unlike anything he's done before. So this character is very kind of still and contained and insular. There's clearly some kind of trauma that's happened that weighs on him. I think he's got a really lovely chemistry with um, Alexandra Roach. There's something that they have a lovely um, dynamic between them. And we should say it is, and this is, and James, this is where you and I may fall out because <laughs> ITV, five-part drama, set in Manchester, <laughs> like I can see, but, but this is, we should say this is created by, Harry Bradbeer, who was director of Fleabag, um, writer Ed Whitmore from Manhunt. This has proper quality TV chops behind it. This is not something that you can just dismiss as being, you know, mass market ITV, weeknight telly. This has real quality embedded in it. And it does have a Gone Girl vibe. There's a, a vigil scene. This is not a spoiler. There's a vigil scene in which there's a speech. I think the dialogue is really well done. I think it's incredibly believable. I am going to watch the rest of them kind of all together consecutively because it's clearly of a piece. But I, I like this. I think it was really solid drama. The first episode is a lot of setup and a lot of establishing who everybody is and the dynamics and and more hinting at, at, at the drama to come. You know something's happened with him before. You know um, there may have been some kind of tragedy or incident with a partner that's kind of affected him professionally and personally. Um, but I'm going to keep watching this and and I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I agree. I think it's really uh, it's really well done because. Um... 
they kind of, as, as in fact, Noel says this in an interview, talked about how it was really a new, a completely new type of role for him. Very internalized. Um, this guy, he actually says, talked about how he he cut lines of dialogue. He was like, he wanted him to say less um, rather than more. And I and you're right. I think I think um, what I thought was really impressive about it is um, his that guy his relationship with Alexandra Roach. It just feels very underplayed and natural, and that's a hard thing to pull off because it is a contrived setup, right? And you know, it, it, he is being thrust into her world, into literally into her flat, and you think, oh, that's that that possibly couldn't happen, but apparently that's exactly how it does work. Like you know they kind of and I think it's a new thing I haven't seen even though so it has got that whole rear window vibe to it but the actual fact that there are special surveillance units who set up in a, someone else's flat and they just ask for a favour can we just use your flat to surveil and observe some dodgy character on the other side of the street is quite I thought it was really interesting um, and I thought they pulled off the the um, authenticity of that really well and you're right it's kind of like because it doesn't go particularly melodramatic um, you know, there aren't that many big, and I've watched up to episode three, so I'm, I'm, I'm assuming it will build to some kind of, fair, you know, climax. There will be more action as it goes on, but it's pretty kind of, it's pretty calmly done, unmelodramatic, and yet really riveting and interesting to watch. And that's a hard thing to pull off, and I think they've done that really well. And um, and and I think their avoidance of kind of melodrama and cliche is really smart. So even like when he goes back to his unit and, you know, his boss is played by Phil Davis. Classic. I love Phil Davis. He's brilliant. But he's like when he does something wrong. So he, he does something quite ridiculous where because his son has to go to hospital, he lets Alexandra Roach carry on the operation for him, basically. And you think, oh, my God, that is ridiculous. But actually, it kind of think, well, that's fine because he would have to go to the hospital to sort out his son. What, what, what is he going to do? And then when he kind of apologises to it, to his boss, his boss is like, nah, you're all right, it's fine. And it's like, I, I thought it was all very refreshing, that element of it, that it doesn't go for histrionics. Um, and I, I really enjoyed it, and I can't wait to see how it all plays out. Well, much as I would like to give you my viewpoint, I haven't seen it, so can't, because we had to divide and conquer this week to cover all the shows. But Viewpoint does air on ITV from Monday, April 26th at 9pm. And next this week we have The Mosquito Coast, Apple's adaptation of the Paul Theroux novel famously made into a Peter Weir film with Harrison Ford in the mid-80s. Uh, this time it is Justin Theroux playing the down-on-his-luck inventor who is forced to flee the US when the authorities come knocking at his door. Isn't that right, Boyd? Yes. As you alluded to, this is a. I first, I first heard about this project. I somehow missed the, the announcement completely when um, Justin Theroux appeared on um, uh, Louis Theroux's podcast earlier this year. As as the cousins they are, and he talked about. It. He was like, "Where are you? Where where are you speaking to me from?" They did the podcast, you know, remotely, and and uh, Justin's like, "Oh, I'm filming this series based on your dad's novel. Um, you know, a remake of of the film that came out all those years ago." And, and Louis's like, "Oh my god, amazing!" And I was like, "Yeah, that's amazing because I didn't know about this project at all." It's it's not you've not only got Justin Theroux. It's written adapted by Neil Cross of Luther. Yes, fame. Of Luther fame and it's directed by robert white rupert wyatt sorry not robert white robert Wyatt was a brilliant musician songwriter <laughs> rupert wyatt of rise of the planet of the apes fame which is a brilliant i love that that entry in the planet of the apes mm. um franchise i think he's a really skillful director and sure enough i have to say this thing does look fucking amazing like uh you know i think this is as cinematic uh, a version of this story as the film. And I really like the film. And the film is pretty, pretty spectacularly directed, you know, anyway. So they've done a pretty amazing job from that point of view. It looks incredible. It's got some quite interesting, dazzling visual um, storytelling in it. Um, and 
Clearly, I think what they're going to do with this is that because I remember read I read this novel years and years and years ago, and I and I and I can barely remember it since. But what I feel like the the kind of USP of this is, it's kind of up to date, so it's kind of set in the present day, and so the kind of technology that it's that that everyone has in it is up for these government um, operatives who are going to try and track down um, Justin Through's character Ali Fox and his family because he's basically this maverick inventor who is kind of. L- lights out from normal society is kind of trying to be off grid um because he wants to plow his own furrow and he doesn't hasn't paid taxes so he's wanted by the authorities for taxes and all kinds of other reasons and so they're constantly this family is constantly on the run anyway and now finally they're about to be caught up with by the authorities so then he's going to take them off to central america and mexico etc but what i think is happening two things uh, you know, if you like, compare this adaptation from that film is one. It's going to be a meticulous, in-depth adaptation of the novel, uh, reinserting a lot of the stuff that the film, obviously a two-hour film, had to cut out mm. um, because it's going to be across like seven episodes, I think, seven hours roughly, and also that it's up to date and modern, and it's kind of going to, you know, everyone, it's going to be, can they, the the authorities using the technology to track these people down, and what's going to happen then? I love Justin Theroux. You know, I think he's fantastic in everything he does. Um, and he's really good in this instantly from the start, as is Melissa George, as his wife, um, as are the, the people who play his kids. Um, I'm instantly gripped. Uh, it, again, it was a bit of a slow burn. You know, they're establishing what's happening with it the family. Is, yeah. uh, it takes its time, definitely. It's it's not fast moving. Some people may be bored, I warn mm. you. It's, but it's, this is clearly a kind of, you know, um, a, they've really thought through how this is going to work. And I think they're, they're trying to establish the characters first and foremost and the situation first and foremost. And then, you know, the kind of... Uh, the, the thrills will come later but I was pretty much instantly gripped I have to say and I'm a, I'm a fan of the story I'm a fan of everyone involved and so far I don't think they've let me down so I'm really I'm really looking forward to watching the rest of it oh, I mean style style over any kind of substance or detail uh, <laughs> the holes everywhere drove me mental uh, so just so Justin Theroux, I think, is so charismatic and so compelling, and I couldn't bear him from the moment he appeared on screen. So there's this opening monologue, and I was like really confused. I'm like, is he meant to be just a really smug and irritating off the grid twat, or is he on the run? And then, as Boyd just explained, it's basically like a bit of both. Um, but he is like. Oh my god! He the the whole kind of oh evil of. I mean, also let's just talk about how much his character would not enjoy being on um, uh, Apple. By the way, if you yeah. want to talk about the whole speech about you know the the landfills full of iPads and they get replaced <laughs> and replaced and replaced by new versions that you don't really need, but they sell to you because hello late stage capitalism. <laughs> yeah, so there's all there's these speeches he gives to his son, and I'm like, I can't work out if he's meant to be a good guy who has who ends up having to do bad things or a bad guy. Who thinks he's doing good things? Do you know what I mean? In kind of a yeah, I think yeah, I think that's I, deliberate. I yeah, say, yeah, like because yeah. he's, he's you get the sense he has this toxic relationship with his son, who he's he's a, he's massively dominating of the entire family. Melissa George doesn't get the greatest amount to do. There's a phone call with her mum, which is quite telling, and and I don't mind having to put the story together myself. I'm not an idiot. Um, TV should be a, I don't believe watching TV should be a passive affair. But the detail is so light. It's kind of like they've gone, 
it fucking looks amazing, which it does, by the way. Like, you can feel the sun scorching your head. You can, like, you want to touch the sky. It's so viscerally, beautifully iterated. It's remarkable. But when it comes to the actual nuts and bolts of the storytelling, the, the, there's not much detail in the dialogue itself. And then the big speeches are all about, you know, him being a pompous, smug twat <laughs> to his family and his kids. His daughter, I, I kind of find her quite compelling. She's, you know, the rebel, kind of rebellious daughter. Um, and that kind of adds a bit of interesting tension. It does ramp up as the episode goes on and has a, 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 a fairly punchy, shall we say, end sequence. But I don't know, I've found it so free of, of those storytelling details that I wanted to know. And I, I'm not suggesting that they, you know, if that was accidental. I know they withheld all of that stuff. But there's so, it's, so much of it is a mystery, all of it. Um, I just found it, I found him insufferable. I found it frustrating. I found it really nice to look at. Um, but I just, no. No. <laughs> no. Wow. No, then that's a no from Terry. I think I fall somewhere in between the two of you. When I first saw the trailer for this, I was really excited about it. I thought it looked great. Watching the first episode, and I have to emphasize obviously, I have only seen the first episodes, and it is so difficult sometimes to judge from the first episode, especially on something like this, where it's kind of a story clearly told over seven parts. Um, it did take a long time to get where it was going. And I've got a lot of patience for slow, tense character building stuff stuff but this didn't feel like that it just felt like it was being slow because they're trying to stretch this out over seven episodes i've not read the novel so i don't know how much story is in the novel to go on but it did feel this was a little bit should we sell self-indulgent in what it did in the first episode um i think justin throw is great i liked him a lot i enjoyed his performance in this and indeed the others melissa george was good as well but i just i was left feeling a little bit restless during this like it didn't really suck me in in the way that i'd kind of really hoped it would so i i i'm the jury's out on whether or not i'm going to press on with this or not i like to think i will because i like him and i like the idea of it but i don't know we we shall see we shall see so i'm i'm this is neither a yes nor a no from me it's a meh it's a meh. But, but anyway my meh uh yeah so the mosquito coast does drop on apple tv on friday the 30th april at which point you can decide for yourself Finally this week, we return to the world of daytime television as Alan Partridge continues his residency as co-host of the BBC's This Time show. Twins, unhelpful monks, and an Alan Walk and Talk form the pillars of this first Series 2 episode. But is there anything here to rival Martin Brennan, Terry? No. <laughs> so, so I, let me just talk about, firstly, how unbelievably excited I am to see this back. Um, we are massive fans of this on this podcast. We uh, shouted, Uda, Uda, at each other long after it stopped being funny. And it was only funny <laughs> long, for a very long, short long. period of time. Um, I just, yeah, I just was so excited. Now, but the first series was fucking genius and the second wasn't far behind it. I just think absolutely fucking brilliant. Now, 
So it's back. As you say, there's been a few changes um, as these shows often go through. So uh, as you say, it opens on this uh, walk and talk on set from his dressing room. Um, And then there's things like Simon Denton um, has been promoted. And when we say promoted, um, he now, as well as reading our emails and tweets, he now has to speak to people on actual phone lines, which goes about as well as as you can imagine. And this, the usual segments, because anybody who hasn't seen this, I'm, sh- I'm sure you all have, but if you haven't seen this, it's obviously it follows the live show, um, but it sticks with them as the kind of cameras, as they stop. And, you know, it's usually Alan talking to Lynn. Um, it's that contrast between the... Uh, the attempts to be polished and professional and and with it on live television and those asides that happen in the very quick breaks or when they've gone off to a VT or something like that. Now, it's still written by um, the Gibbon brothers, Neil and Rob and and Steve Coogan, directed by the Gibbons brothers. All of our favourite people are back. So Susanna Fielding, who we raved about, when this first started, is just brilliant as Jenny. Like the complete great foil to Alan, younger, um, arguably more successful, more attractive, um, more popular with the viewers, um, smarter, and yet obviously because he's Alan Partridge, he patronises her constantly. Tim Key, as I said, is back as Simon Denton, and the segments are as as bizarre as they normally would be. And actually, there's no exact... What is brilliant about this is that there's no fucking exaggeration here. There is, like, this is exactly like watching the one show. Um, so there's a body language expert interview, which Alan completely... I won't say how, but he completely dominates and makes about himself because obviously that's what he does. And he's still got that thing that we've seen... Um, in in previous seasons and actually how they brilliantly evolved that character is he's still deluded, he's still arrogant, but he's also got this new panic about him, this insecurity. And I still think it, it was the perfect time to bring him back with Brexit being the way it is, with the rise of a technology that he will in no way understand, like this, this kind of the current state of the world in modern culture, I think is, is perfect for Partridge. And if anyone has seen Richard Madeley attempt to do live TV at any point in the last six months, which I have, then you will see exactly why this is in no way an exaggeration, this character. All of these things are kind of what we're used to I suppose is what I'd say um, from Alan. And there is brilliantly my favorite character, probably on any TV show ever, um, is Ruth Duggan, played by the brilliant Lolly Adifope. Now, all I'm going to say is, I was, I'm going to cut to the chase and say, I was disappointed by this first episode because these episodes at their best. They make you cringe. They make you feel awkward. But they are laugh out loud funny. And the gags here didn't work for me in the same way that I remember working for them brilliantly. A, because it didn't feel like there was a standout. Like we talk about Martin Brennan, right? But there, I remember standout characters and standout segments from, from previous ones. And, you know, there's a gag about BBC and elitism, a private school gag. There's, and there's a whole shtick about the fact that obviously Simon Denton's been promoted to now answer the phone, but he can't work out 
the interface so he's constantly clicking on the wrong thing but they're all stuff we've seen before and obviously it's fine for that thread to continue i just there were less moments of proper nailing the gag of where i was constantly constantly laughing and i don't know if it's because my expectations were too high i don't know if it's because i loved it so much before that i you know had maybe did i have too too great uh expectation i don't i don't know and i feel like am i being unfair but i all i know is that that was my response to it is i i just didn't have the same the same reaction that i had to the previous season which i just thought was every single episode was just brilliant brilliant sparkling knock it out of the park funny tv and and i didn't feel like that with this first episode and it's i'm really upset about it and i i really hope that i feel differently in future episodes and i'm and you know i never usually doubt my own opinions let's be frank but with this i'm like i'm i'm wondering if it's you know am i gonna is everybody else gonna disagree with me and is it exactly of the same standard but something in it just didn't connect with me i just didn't find it as funny and maybe it's because these these gags by the very nature of it as Oh, have had to be. It's been done before because the whole setup is the same, and and so are a lot of the gags going to be the same? I don't know. Boyd, tell me what you think because I feel like I. Oh, it's interesting. I'm yeah, good. no, I didn't. I have to say, I mean, my story of what I think. I think possibly watching Partridge more than more than most things we kind of review. It depends a lot on your the context sometimes and the way. Mm. So. But I, I'm going to be. I was waiting to see this for so long, like literally mm. weeks. I was like, "Can you send me the episode? Can you send me the episode?" They were like editing it. I know that they weren't lying. They edit this stuff really close to the to, to the mark. They had, you know, they, to launch on BBC One. I did a piece for Empire coming out next month with um, Steve and the Gibbons brothers, who were brilliant, by the way. And I was like, "Please give me this fucking episode!" And I finally got it. It was such a relief to me. That I was like, "Oh, oh, I can watch it." I was so happy, and I did love it. So I wonder whether I don't know. That was just so. I've watched it three times since then. I think I've watched it four times altogether. Um, and it keeps me laughing every single time I watch it. And I've also watched the second episode now, which I think is better. I think you'll, I think the second episode I think was even funnier. The second episode has a character, and I won't spoil it, but he brings back a character from knowing me, knowing you um, onto the bonquette. And it's amazing. And, it's, and it ends in an absolute, I think it's a classic moment. So I don't think there is a classic moment like, yeah. um, um like uh, Martin Brennan in episode one. And I'm sure they probably, you know, I think they are aware of when they come up with a classic moment. But it did keep me laughing solidly all the way through. And even stuff like the very first guest, Leila Farzad, who's from I Hate Susie, remember? She was um, she was uh, Billy's, Billy Piper's brilliant best mate slash manager. And she's phenomenal. She plays the body language expert who is brilliantly dismissed. She literally says, everyone thinks they know something about body language. And Alan goes, well, I do think I know something about body language. And that, that instantly had me laughing. As soon as but she... That- but yeah, I tell you what it was that like because obviously so much of the of the first series it it's that and actually so much of that character is a him believing he knows better than all the experts yeah but particularly being dismissive and patronising to women yeah so and I love her but I was like I felt like I'd seen that done because that's his shtick sure. and obviously that and 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 maybe the um I don't know I don't know what it was and I think it was the lack of 
Like, I think pretty much every um, every episode I'd seen of the first series, there was something at the end that I was like, holy fuck, that bit, that, yeah. that segment, uh, that right. guest was amazing. Right. And they all felt solid, but it didn't feel like there was one. Because I thought of the monks, I was like, it's going to be the monks. The monk stuff is, and it yeah. was funny, but it didn't. Right. Uh, well, I think the ending. So we, we can. There's, there's a. We can. Simon Farnaby's back as the son of the head of factual programming, who was in the first. Who I love that character. See, I think he's brilliant as this kind of smug public schoolboy TV presenter, son of someone else, who um, who was in that episode. That was my favourite episode, I think, where he was so smug and Alan had to kind of like kept mentioning he was the son of the head of factual programming. He is back in this episode. We can't say why or how because no. that's a big reveal. Yeah, but I thought that was hysterically funny, I have to say. Just seeing Alan in the background as he arrives back on the scene and, and there's a studio audience, a little studio audience that he's kind of being really throwing stuff to and stuff. And I honestly, again, that had me I was laughing hysterically like a fucking idiot at all of that stuff. So it was just that was just my chemical reaction to it. So it's weird, isn't it? Yeah. I, I know what you mean, I think, in terms of... But that was just... That was all borderline classic, I thought, the, the return of that character <laughs> and what happened. Borderline so, classic. And then when I watched it twice more, or even three times more, I am still laughing very heavily at that ending. Um, I so, mean... Yeah, I let's, mean... Let's be honest. I'm going to keep... I'm going to keep... Yeah. I mean, I watch, I rewatched the first series probably five times. Yeah, same, same. And, this, and um, was it a special... Was it the special... I want to say a special. They was did Scissor Dial before this, which is an all-time classic, brilliant yeah. Scissor Dial, yeah. Incredible. And I think, and I like, and so obviously I'm going to keep watching. And I don't, yeah. and as I say, it may be, this will be the first time you, you and last you will ever hear yeah. my question. I think you'll really like, like episode two. Oh, and let me just say this, apart from this, this character they bring back, it, there's also, he goes to prison and hangs out with prisoners and he reads them classic TV listings from TV Times. It is so random and bizarre. <laughs> it, that, I think that is a classic moment. It's hysterically funny. He talks about, region, I haven't got onto the regional variation. Yeah, which it may just be because I've worked in TV listings like most of my life that that particularly appealed to me. But um, there are many, many gems, I think, in, in episode two. But yeah, I mean, I think it's just brilliant to have him back. I just don't understand Alan Partridge is the problem. <laughs> and look, it may be because I am, in fact, part Partridge and perhaps that's why I don't part? see the comedy in <laughs> Part? Which part? The top part, the middle part, the top part? But I was watching it last night and I felt like, you know, the T-800 in Terminator 2. Just like, I understand academically what you mean when you refer to this humour. But just on an emotional level, I just, there's no levity or humour for me. It's like I could be watching a documentary. I just don't find it funny. Except for, I will say, I identified two moments in this episode of quote-unquote humour. And one of them made me smile. And then, which was, again, without ruining everything, there was a bit where he's being particularly snarky to someone on their, shall we say, on the use of clarity with regarding what they're talking about, uh, which made me laugh. And then there is a gag at the very, very end, which actually did make me laugh. And I was like, oh, good. Yes, laughter, humour. I understand this. But other than that, I was just like, this this is just so far away from my sense of humour, Alan Partridge, is that I just, I can't, I can't do it. I can't. I just don't understand. It's like, it's like I'm an alien. It's like I'm watching Dark or something like that. I'm watching something that's incomprehensible and in a foreign language. And I just don't know what's happening. Even even the, the lolly, ad- I agree with Terry, lolly adafope as Ruth Duggan is just brilliant. That- Creation. So that creation, creation that. 
and that idea that she will not have any truck with anything other than sex and how they slightly changed that week in week out I think is yeah. so wonderful I love it and and again Susanna Fielding her every she is astonishing and he talks about this in an interview that how she conveys with just the flickers of her eyes what she's thinking about Alan whilst being professional so that she doesn't actually convey it to mm. the audience that are watching the one show style show but she does do it enough to the audience of us watching from a distance of this show this time with Alan Partridge to make it clear that she thinks he's a fucking bellhead <laughs> and uh, those moments are so beautifully done so I just think the casting and the um um, those moments of performance moments are also absolutely so. Which is why I love watching it repeatedly because you just get more and more of it. There are yeah. so many, and Alan, Alan again, his performance as Alan is so detailed. There's so many weird pronunciations and expressions and um, uh, emphases, and just it, it, it's just got more rich and more bizarre, frankly, as it goes on. So yeah, I mean, yeah, I do love it. the detail. I mean, and that's a really good point, actually, Boyd, because I think James, you presume it's like kind of very overt, kind of stupid humour almost, and it's like being hit in the face with a frying pan Oh, no, it's not but, that. I don't think it's that. What do you think, then? Because it's the the detail of it. I think that's is a Trojan horse because it comes in and he's like, oh, and he's, he's like a massive, he's a massive wally, a massive clear wally. But the, like Boyd says, like with um, Ruth Duggan, those extra, the writing of those mm, exchanges, yeah. even had the delivery and then how... She, I mean, it's those things are done with such delicacy and every movement is choreographed. It's like a dance. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like every bit of intonation, which, what is it that doesn't Well, I connect? get that it is actually quite sophisticated in the way it's put together. Like, I don't think this is like, you know, like I hate stupid humour. I hate broad humour, which I just kind of look down my nose at and I'm quite elitist about. Like, this is not that at all. Like, I don't, I think this is actually really, really layered, clever, very, as you say, precisely calibrated comedy product. It's just because my sense of humour is incompatible with it. It's just not my type of humour. Same with Kirby Enthusiasm. I watched that. It leaves me absolutely stone cold. The Office, again, can't be dealing with it. It's just, like, cringe humour generally, although this isn't pure cringe humour. Like, there's more to this. But it's not something that I genuinely find funny. And when I look at people like, just bellowing with laughter watching it i do kind of sometimes realize whether someone dropped me on my head as a child <laughs> i don't uh i mean you know. your t2 reference kind of says everything yeah it does. i know, I know why you laugh but it's something yes. i could never do but you found martin brennan fun well, i mean yes i appreciated I mean, it was amusing i found that an amusing I, sketch it but, amusing. Oh but it's not God. like i was howling and rolling on the floor i was like oh jolly good this is funny you know wow <laughs> you see that is that that will stand the test of time as yeah. one of the great British TV comedy yeah. moments. It will. It absolutely yeah, will. Yeah, 100%, 100%, yeah. Yeah, I feel like I've just been... I feel, I'm, I'm, like, twisted up about it. I've got to be honest. Um, Don't be twisted I'm, up about it. I think... I think... I think I, 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 I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of people agree with you, you know, uh, and, but I'd say I think, I think you'll prefer episode two much more. I think it is... I think it's a, it's a step up. I think it, it does feel like a bringing them back and reminding us, you know, even then of what, yeah. of what the situation is. But then it, I think it starts flying properly in episode two, I would say. Well, this time with Alan Partridge does return to the BBC on BBC One on Friday, April the 30th at 9.30pm. Now, this podcast has been going on for approximately a fortnight at this point, but we still have a couple of other things to cover. Uh, Boyd, what were the other TV shows that we did not review, which you have, of course, seen being that you see everything? Well, Intergalactic is a pretty big show for Sky One, actually, mm. and now um, it starts on Friday as well at nine o'clock. It's a kind of ambitious, big sci-fi 
thing. It's like a prison drama. It's like a set in a wim- in a kind of spaceship, which is a women's prison. And one of the women there, which we see in in the kind of setup of it, has been um, uh, is wrongfully accused of a crime, and she's been totally set up. Um, and her mother's trying to trying to sort her out and get her freed. M- meanwhile, there's a rebellion by the prisoners anyway on this ship. It's set a kind of about hundred years into the future in London, and they have some pretty spectacular, I have to say, kind of world building of th- this kind of bombed out version of London that for some reason has never been renovated. You see like the remains of Tower Bridge and stuff. It's pretty, it's pretty um, ambitious um, uh, stuff and it's fun. I'm not quite sure how it would be interesting to see what people think of it. Um, it was kind of entertaining and fun, but I, I, I didn't quite draw me in as much as I'd hoped, but it's good. It's, 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 and it, and it definitely on, on, on the fundamental level, it's kind of, it's definitely clearly had a huge budget thrown at it. And the other thing, which I really liked is the new Harlan Coburn adaptation. So Harlan Coburn on, we, we reviewed the British versions like safe of his show that have been on Netflix. And he's got a huge deal with Netflix and they turn his, a lot of his old novels into things, into, into new shows. There was a Polish version of one of his things last year and we've had English versions and there's been French films and TV series. Now we've got a Spanish version of The Innocent, which is a novel of his from 2005. One of my favorites actually. And this is really good. This is like a really well-made, beautifully filmed, um, well-acted uh, version of one of his books. And it's all about this guy called Matt, who ends up accidentally killing someone in the beginning in a fight in a club, in a nightclub, outside a nightclub. He's sent to prison. Nine years later, he comes out and has a has a wife and everything. She goes on a business call to Berlin, and then really weird things start happening from there that he can't work out what's going on. He can't work out where he's being set up, whether she's really she's really in love with him, what's happening with her. There's like seems to be some guy spying on her and the, or saying that she's having an affair with her. And the kind of level of paranoia and doubt, which Harlan Coburn always does brilliantly in these books is really well um is really well dramatized in this thing that's the innocent which is also on netflix on friday the 30th of april and i think that is broadly speaking it what is our pick of the week this week this time with alan partridge for me yeah this time with alan partridge i'm going to abstain because i don't understand you, you can't abstain <laughs> you can't abstain I, I'm, I'm well, honestly of the shows that I watched this week. The one I enjoyed the most is Shadow and Bone. Well, so Shadow and Bone is my it. pick Have of the, the courage week. of your conviction. All right, there we go. I'm going full YA. Shadow and Bone it is. Uh, and that does indeed mark the end of this episode of the Pilot TV Podcast. I have asked you all for five-star ratings on 130 occasions at this point, so by now you presumably know the drill. Uh, but do please, if you haven't already, uh, you can find us on social media at James C. Dyer, at Boyd Hilton, and at Terry underscore White, slash at Terry L. White. And for the bargain price of 13 pieces of silver, you can find Judas White's other podcast coming undone wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, we'll be back next week with another batch of shows, uh, possibly including The Bad Batch, the new Star Wars animation, if uh, we can get past our egregious animation snobbery in order to watch it. (laughs) Find out next week. Pilot out.